Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. The goal is to bring not just Asian women, but all women and non-binary male allies, et cetera, to come in. And the goal is to raise a community treasury through an NFT and then use that community treasury that the community owns and decides on where it goes to be able to fund people to work remotely and build the projects that they want to see in the world. And the one standard that we have is that this should empower more people to be able to be more nomadic. Today's most interesting location independent entrepreneurs and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Ivy Shu. She is a location independent entrepreneur, full time digital nomad, and the co founder of Beta Camp an educational startup which has helped over 250 teenagers build startups and raise over $150,000 in seed funding. Originally from Canada, Ivy has traveled to over 40 countries and is the co-founder of the Asian Female Nomads Facebook community, which has organically grown to over 900 members. Ivy is also the founder of Wonder Woman Dow a venture studio DAO building products to empower more women and non-binary wanderers to be location independent and financially free. And she will be launching her first NFT project later this year. Ivy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here. Let's just start off by setting the scene because we are actually in the same country. Unfortunately, we're not in the same city and we're not in person for this interview, but we have agreed to make this a wine night. So let's talk about where we are and what we're drinking. I am in Medellin, Colombia, and I have just opened a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon from Chile. Where are you, Ivy, and what are you drinking? I'm in Bogota, Colombia, and I just missed you by one day in Medellin. We were introduced the day before I was flying out. And by the time you messaged me, I was literally boarding a plane. (laughs) So really unfortunate, but here I am, one hour flight away from you. And I am drinking also a Cabernet Sauvignon, and I have no idea where it's from. 
Unfortunately, I'm staying at a co-living space full of digital nomads, my first experience. And the bar just offered me red or white. <laughs> and I was like, red, please. <laughs> and on the menu, it said Kavtsov. And I was like, okay, that's fine with me. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. I love that. That's awesome. Yes, we just missed each other by a day, which was crazy. But that's what happens in this nomad life when you're zigzagging around the world. But super glad we could hook it up virtually. I would love to start, though, by going all the way back, Ivy. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and your cultural background. And also, as you were growing up, can you talk about the role of competitive figure skating in your life? Yeah, sure. So I am ethnically Chinese. I was born in Beijing. My mom's from Shanghai. My dad's from Beijing, very much like a city type of family. And I moved to Canada when I was four years old, grew up in Ottawa, Canada, I think a few things did really influence my upbringing. So figure skating being one of them, as well as I think a Chinese heritage because I actually went back to China every single summer. But I picked up figure skating when I was young and started doing competitive figure skating when I was 11, did varsity skating in my time in university. And I think playing any kind of competitive sport just makes you, number one, very competitive you get a lot of discipline and what hard work feels like. And you know how much hard work needs to be put in for like a three-minute program <laughs> that you get to compete maybe three times a year. But then I was on the ice like 20 hours a week. You need to do off-ice training, mental training. There's a lot of artistry, but also a lot of endurance. But I think that's the mindset that I hold in like figure skating and in my life right now. Like I always tell myself, like, am I trying my best? And what that means because to me, there's no plan B. It's just plan A. When you think back as a kid, when you were going to China every summer and then coming back and living in Canada, when you think back on that, what impact did that have on you? And how did that shape your identity? Yeah, I'm very lucky to have gone back every year since I was eight years old after my parents divorced and my dad moved back to China. So I got to see China change, even though I didn't pay too much attention to it, you know, as an eight-year-old or 12-year-old. But it was still noticeable after like a decade of like what I remember China to be when going when I was eight. So the first thing is seeing how fast I think an ecosystem and a city can change. I think that's the one fascination I have about the world and why I love to travel now is to see like what stage are different cities at because every country and city goes through cycles and being able to kind of witness that is really, really interesting. And then secondly, on a cultural perspective, I went back and took like an SAT prep course in China, which is a really weird thing to do because people that are not that good at English but they're very good at test taking. And my parents decided they were going to send me there to learn how to write tests. So I went back for an SED prep course. I've done internships there. And because I interacted with peers and not just adults and like my grandma, it was like in North America, almost being Chinese, speaking Chinese, listening to Fabi music, you know, from China was like not cool. And I grew up with people making fun of the way that my lunch was because it wasn't a sandwich. And I switched to sandwiches for a week. And then I was like, no, mom, I really like my fried rice a lot better. So please keep giving me my fried rice. But every time I went back to China, I realized that I'm like, wow, not being able to speak good Chinese was uncool. You know, like I couldn't make sense of the humor that they were talking about because I didn't watch the same shows that they watched. I didn't understand a lot of the references. I couldn't write 
fast enough, what was on the blackboard, and people made fun of me. And I'm like, wow, it's actually very different that what's cool somewhere could be not cool somewhere else. And it's all up to perception. And I think that really helped me grow into who I am and think about what it means and like what I want to take away from both cultures. So Ivy, I have been to Hong Kong and I have been to Macau. I have not yet been to mainland China. I've transferred through the airport in Beijing. I have not been outside of the airport. It is tippy, tippy top of my list in terms of places that I want to go. And I feel like it deserves an enormous amount of my time because of how huge it is and how much amazing stuff is there. But I wanted to ask you for me and for other listeners that have not spent time in mainland China, what for you as an adult going back have been some of the top highlights, some of the things you really love most about China? And what sort of tips or recommendations do you have for people that want to go and spend time in China? Where should they go? What should they see? Yeah, it should definitely be on top of your list. My most recent trip was a three-month trip in 2019. And lucky me, I got to do that before the pandemic hit. And what I always did as a kid was actually visit the major cities. So in China, there's different tiers of cities. And it's used as a business term, government term. Everyone knows that these are just the language that people use. Tier one being the wealthiest and largest cities. That's Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou. Guangzhou being the Cantonese major hub in China. And then there's tier two cities. And honestly... Like if you look at like New York, San Francisco, they're like a tier three city in China, like the size of it and like how developed it is, the GDP of it, et cetera. Like, okay, maybe New York GDP is pretty high in Silicon Valley, but like the people and how people live there is like a tier three city. So you can't even imagine what like tier one cities and even some tier two cities are really like. Dating in Beijing, if you date like five subway stops away, it's basically a long distance. It's really hard to get around. I mean, there's so many different business centers and like downtown centers. I'm seeing that too in like the rest of Asia and Latin America. But what I would recommend like someone going there for the first time is to experience these different tiers of cities because everything about them is super different and businesses handle them differently. And the most unique thing about I think Chinese tech scene is that they actually niche down to very, very specific because there are like billions of people there. So if you manage to actually capture a really small niche of people, you would be like a unicorn. I was actually in Shanghai where I met with this European guy who was building a social graph type of startup. And he said, if every Shanghai small business used my product that's within a five kilometer radius from my office, I would be a unicorn. And I'm like, wow, that is so, so crazy, right? So because these companies would be targeting, like they would be like a tier four city young mom between the age of like 18 to 25 who makes this income, they would be super, super specific. And therefore, like the people that you meet and the experiences that you have in each tier city will be super different. So obviously visit like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. Just those three big tech hubs are really different. Beijing's very, very tech heavy and government heavy. Shanghai's more finance and retail fashion heavy. And Shenzhen is way more diverse than Beijing or Shanghai because it was a special like innovation zone that got a lot of different government support and is very welcoming to people all around the country versus Beijing and Shanghai are like Chinese royalty <laughs> where like you would be riding a train in Beijing and it would pass by the train station or a bunch of like, you can tell they're from 
the tier three, four cities coming in and you just see the Beijing people raise their heads and their nose turns up a little bit higher. But yeah, go to the tier two cities to compare Hangzhou, which is where the Alibaba head office is, is actually a tier two city. Go there and then go to some of the factory towns that will be tier three and tier four cities. And like people's aspirations are even different there. So let me ask you this a question that I get from nomads about mainland China as a nomad destination for non-Chinese folks. How is the internet situation? Because I know there's a number of platforms that are basically not usable on mainland China, right? So for nomads from outside of China, if they needed to work and they were going to go for a few months like you did, what do you recommend? Is that viable? And if so, what are the dynamics there people need to be aware of? Yeah. So first of all, like your phone plan, if your phone is from the States or from like somewhere outside of China, nothing is actually banned on it. So just buy like a really good roaming plan and you'll be able to access Facebook, Instagram, whatever else they ban. So that's for your phone. So first of all, you could go on all of those apps that apparently on the media it says that you're banned. But I also think it's a great experience for you to try out all these Chinese apps because you'll be very surprised on how usable they are and also how much you can do on them. And it just makes Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat all look like they're very, very outdated. In terms of like internet, all of China has very, very good internet. Obviously, there's different hubs and centers. So there's always like international schools. And so there's like actually government approved VPNs. So they're totally usable. My dad uses it. My little brother uses it. My little brother goes to international school in Shenzhen. And then there's also like office buildings that are more like international companies where like their Wi-Fi is fully like you can use and do whatever on. So I did not work from a co-working space at that time. I pretty much just use VPNs, but I'm sure that like there's WeWorks, et cetera, that will allow foreigners to work on things that maybe China bans. Awesome. So if folks want to go like for three months and just post up in China and hit some of those cities and just work from there should be no problem. They do a little bit of research in advance, but you can definitely navigate it and have a smooth working experience. Yeah, definitely the big cities for sure. Okay. My husband was working for a American startup, but that was totally fine, even without a VPN. It depends on what you need. And my mom also works remotely in China. So I think Slack is not banned. It's more of the social media apps. Like it's more information control which you can access anyway through your phone. Awesome. Well, one of the other things that you have done, Ivy, that I have not done is you've done the running of the bull in Pamplona, Spain. Now, Spain is a place that I try to go probably every year. I aim to swing through Spain and spend some time there because it's one of my favorite countries, but I have not yet been to Pamplona. So for people that are not even familiar with this, they don't know what the running of the bull is, can you explain what it is? And then I would love to hear your experience. Spain is trying to ban bullfighting. And to be fair, when I went to run with the bulls, I did not know that the bulls that were chasing me were going to die that night in the stadium in bullfights, okay? When I went to a first bullfight, I was very surprised that they killed bulls. I was 20, 1920 at the time on my study abroad exchange in Europe. And so San Fermin is a festival in July where they really kick off a huge one-week or two-week-long bullfighting festival. And on the opening ceremony, everyone just throws sangria around. Like, you can buy these two-euro buckets of sangria and people are just throwing sangria off the balconies and people really, really party. And then on the first night where there's a bullfight, 
amongst all other knights that morning. They release all the bulls and there's like an 800 meter within town and the old town with cobble streets and very narrow streets that the bulls are going to run into the bull ring from their pens, which is like 400 meters away. And the city fences these off. But there's a lot of tourists and also probably not many locals, but people from all across Spain too, come in and crawl through the barriers. And you don't really know where the, this route is, but you know when you have to crawl through a barrier. But you also don't know how far you are from the pen and how far you are from the bull ring. But then there's like a gunshot and then the bulls are released from their pens and they have nowhere to go except for straight into the bull ring because it's fenced off and there's narrow streets. And you're just kind of in there hoping that a bull doesn't like run into you. So you just kind of run and then some people just stand to the side to see the bulls pass, which is what I did when I heard them. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. And I just went to the side, <laughs> but my friend ended up running into the bull ring. But that's what it was. It was a huge adrenaline rush. People die during it. And the morning that I did it, I think four people got hospitalized because bulls might fall when they turn a corner. The ground was very slippery with sangria, with urine, with other alcohol, and it smells really bad. People slip all the time and they might get kind of crushed against the wall. Wow. So, Ivy, I want to get a little bit of your career trajectory that sort of led up to your location independence and your nomadic lifestyle. Can you talk a little bit about your transition from jobs to freelancing to entrepreneurship and sort of how your professional trajectory unfolded? I worked in Silicon Valley for a few years and most recently at Wish, a really, really big e-commerce platform. When I was there, it was the number one downloaded shopping app in the world. I led all business development and merchant acquisition in regions outside of China. And so when I was wanting to leave Wish, I had offers from Facebook Marketplace, Instagram Shopping. You know, my boss went to Google Shopping and there was a lot of options, but I knew that I wanted to take some time and live in a camper van in Australia or New Zealand. I think that was like this dream where I thought it was just freedom, freedom to be able to go wherever I want and have a new backyard every day. I was going to get inspiration there and that's how I was going to launch my first startup because my goal was I was going to be an entrepreneur by the time I was 26 and I just turned 25 and I was like, okay, I need to go. And so at that time, my husband actually got fired from his job, now husband, then boyfriend of six months. And we decided that, okay, let's just go on the road. And so the first thing that I did was just reach out to people whose accounts that I managed at Wish. There were sellers that I brought on and helped them succeed and some people that I used to work with. So landed some consulting gigs in the e-commerce space. So I was either helping people succeed on Wish or I was helping them build e-commerce platforms themselves, such as in a gaming app, maybe they want to give rewards that are physical products to people who win different points. Like how do they set that up? How do they get the right sellers? How do they reduce the prices? So I did some consulting and work in that space. After that, I started trying to launch my companies and there was a lot of failed projects. We tried to do things in e-commerce, something called Boba Bullet. We tried to sell like, you know, instead of hot chocolate bombs, we want to do like a Boba bomb. 
but then we couldn't figure out the recipe, like my husband and I. Um, so that didn't work out. And then we tried to do some like sustainable packaging design. So like you can design it on a computer and then we'll send you like a bunch of like boxes that you can fold. There's companies that do this and we wanted to do it more sustainably, but then that was just really, really hard, I think, to capture an audience. And I, I remember being in Bali in the co-working spaces there and trying to work on this. But anyway, just kind of gave up on that. And then what ended up happening was I had an article that went viral years ago about getting a job in San Francisco while you're non-technical. So six things that I wish I had known while job hunting in San Francisco. It still ranked really, really well on Google. It was written in like 2016. And even then, in 2019, I was still getting messages every week or two, many, many messages about people that wanted to do the same and wanted my help. And when I came back from this one-year trip for Christmas, I was like, I have to do something. Nothing's really working out for me and I don't want to do e-commerce consulting anymore. And so I ended up buying this course from a friend of a friend who was teaching coaches, to new coaches to monetize and become coaches. And so I ended up career coaching where after two weeks of sending out my market research survey, I had like 120 people interested in a free coaching call, which I then turned into a sales call. And then I landed really easily like 10 to 15 one-on-one clients. But obviously like also one-on-one client coaching similar to e-commerce consulting, like trading time for money, I immediately didn't like it anymore. (laughs) And so when I finished with these 15 clients, I turned this into a group coaching program. And I ended up doing that for a little bit where I recorded some lessons and then did some group coaching calls, reducing like 15 hours with 15 clients to like two hours a week, all the clients on a group coaching call. But then the pandemic hit and I didn't feel comfortable with doing that anymore. And that's where Betacamp was launched. And I would say that if I didn't do a lot of the things that I had done before, like career coaching and being able to charge a lot of money for an online service, I wouldn't have had the confidence to charge a lot for an online camp, like charge for what it's worth in terms of value. And then in between that, I also tried to build an online course hosting platform for dance teachers and music teachers, like things that need feedback. But then we realized that you had to build everything that like Teachable and Kajabi has in order to like add in these other features. So that didn't really work out, but that, that ended up being Betacamp's student portal. Can you explain what Betacamp is and talk a little bit about how the initial idea came about. The idea of Betacamp came from my younger sister, who was 15 at the time. And she was just very lost in her journey of finding what her passion is and what to study post-secondary. So the original idea was actually to take my sister to go and visit some friends so that she could shadow and look at all the different possibilities there were out there for her. But the pandemic hit and that was not possible. And I'm sure she didn't want to listen to people talk about their jobs on Zoom. Like no one wanted to do that. And so Betacamp ended up becoming this thing where we help kids build their first startup. And through the means of doing that, they learn what they need to do at each stage of building the startup. And therefore, all those different roles within a company. So then they can discover what they really like doing and what they don't like doing. And then they get to interact with real people working in those roles. And it becomes relevant for them to listen to what these people do because it applies directly to their startup. Can you talk a little bit about Betacamp when you rolled it out initially, sort of the pilot for that? And then from there how you scaled it and built systems and processes and what Betacamp looks like today? Yeah. We first conceived of the idea of Betacamp. So my co-founder has been my best friend since we were about 11 years old. We went to middle school together. 
high school. We did the same program in college. We were roommates. And then she just finished her MBA program and had a summer off. And she's like, okay, my mom is a grade three teacher. Parents of grade three kids are going crazy because kids are at home and they need something to do. And she said, why don't we launch something together where we provide like fun activities for grade 30 kids, like seven to 11 year olds kind of thing. And I'm like, do we really want to spend the summer like entertaining like seven to 11 year olds on Zoom? And I was like, we have no competitive advantage here. Why don't we build it for high school kids? Because my sister was in high school at the time. I knew that this was going to be a problem. And at least my mom had connections to know her friends, like my sister's friend's parents. We have some kind of outlet for this. And we have an advantage where these kids who were going to go to summer schools and summer programs, they were all canceled. And personally, I've been through incubators and summer programs. We can build something similar online. So the first thing that we did was we launched a website and put out a poster with a QR code to join our WeChat group because we wanted my mom to first share it. And that was it. Like We messaged some friends who went to Stanford and Harvard and worked at Apple and Google. We're like, if we do this, if we end up running a summer program, will you just come and sit on a panel and like talk to these students? And they said, yes. So we're like, great. Our camp counselors are from Harvard, Stanford, Warden, Google, Ikea, whatever, like all these different brands on our website. And that was like the main key highlight. We're like, okay, you're going to learn how to build a startup from these people. And that was about it. And then we ended up sending this website and like QR code and everything around. And within four days, we had 180 parents in the WeChat group being like, okay, when's the info session? And this was like end of May, Memorial Day, like weekend. That's when I built the website. And at that time, US parents, their kids were out of school within two weeks. Like we only had about four weeks max to like collect payments. So we had to go through marketing and launch and like collect payments, build the entire program and do it in July and August. Honestly, the first iteration was just came out of my mind of like what it took to like build a startup. We made a six week program. Six weeks was just pulled because it was the intersection time between summers for US kids and Canadian kids. And we're like, okay, six weeks is fine. I did an incubator program when I was 19 in university, kind of based it off of like all the different steps that it took to launch a startup. And so we just had an outline. Once we actually started having kids in, we got 70 applications in round one and 50 applications for round two. So we had about 120 applications, ended up onboarding 72 kids. When they paid, we started working on the curriculum. And at that time, we got the first two weeks before we started. And then we built the third week of the first week, the fourth week and the second week. And we got a lot of feedback from the kids. And because I had my little sister, we could test the entire curriculum on her first, on what's boring, what's not. We got feedback after every session. But since then, it hasn't evolved too much in the sense of what happens week over week. What has evolved is people think like some things are really boring. We add in activities. We add in cheat sheets to help kids take in information better. It's not me doing the startup guidance anymore. We hire people to do startup guidance. And Small changes, I think, like that as we master, like, how do we scale this program? Like, at what point do we need expert people to come in? The head of innovation at IKEA does our design thinking workshop, but there's only one of them. So even if we have like 50 students versus 200 students, like, how do we scale that up? And so we built out templates and curriculum, like workspaces for kids to actually be able to do it themselves and hire facilitators that are alumni to come in and make sure things run smoothly. So things like that, that like tweak what, could make the program better. But just from those six weeks, 
kids really launch great startups. Like most teams monetize. We had 12 or 13 teams in that first summer. 80% of teams made some money. And then the kids from that cohort, like one kid who was 14 at the time, 16 now in January, just raised 150,000 Canadian dollars, 125K USD from On Deck, which is a totally professional accelerator that I'm part of. (laughs) So it's been a really, really great journey. That's amazing. When you think back now, Ivy, about all of your entrepreneurial experiences, the failures, as well as the successes, what tips do you have for aspiring location-independent entrepreneurs in terms of finding business ideas that can be built and executed remotely and any other tips for becoming an entrepreneur? I YouTube about this and I have a YouTube video about how to find business ideas, like five ways to find business ideas, because this is exactly what we teach these like 12 to 17 year olds. And if they can do it, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast can 100% do this. If the question is like, how do you find business ideas? It's number one, looking for problems in this world, like problems that you personally experience and understanding that anything where you're like working on a laptop in an office, you can work on a laptop at a ski resort, right? So you can do anything from like e-commerce to coaching to software and apps. But as long as it's something that you see a problem in in the world, and one way to do that is like, maybe think about an audience that you're really interested in serving and start there. If you can't come up with something that you personally experience or just walking around with a notebook all day. And I can think of like 20 problems by 10 a.m. every morning and just not enough time to go and solve all of them. One other way that we teach at beta camps to work backwards from like big problems that you want to solve in the world, like climate change or like poverty and all these things that seem really overwhelming. But working back through theory of change is the concept of what needs to happen in order for poverty to not exist anymore. And keep going until you get to a concrete step of what you can do. I think there's a lot of different ways to do ideation. But where people and these kids that I see really struggle with is you just need to start really small. And you start with like a very small audience and just kick off. We all want to solve humongous things. We want to do really amazing things. Looking at what Uber's first iteration or Airbnb's first iteration looked like, it's something that you can build as well. Like DoorDash, their first iteration was just a website with a number on it where you call the DoorDash founders. You were like, I want food from that place. (laughs) And then the DoorDash people literally drove, like the founders drove to that restaurant, bought it, brought it to the house and got paid like pizza delivery, right? Like anyone can build a website on Squarespace. It doesn't take coding and like put their number on it and then like be able to do that. So like, that's what we teach our kids. Like, it's a step-by-step thing. And like, you scale when you need to scale and you have too many customers calling you. Now you need like a customer service team and more people to do it. And then you need software to be able to support that. But until that happens, you can do all of these things yourself. And I think it's just really important. This is like the number one thing that we teach at Big We iterate this so many times. 10,000 experiments over 10,000 hours. Because I think kids these days in school they write business plans. They like try to make their essays perfect and they like make their art perfect. I don't know, to get their A plus, right? But I think in school and most people who want to be entrepreneurs think that they need like a perfect business plan. They need to know everything that might happen in their plans and then like what they're going to do about it at that point. But then you can't predict 
step two if you never get to step one. Like you're at step zero. You're not going to be able to see step two. So it's about try different things. If this works, great, follow up with it. But if it doesn't, like try something else. It's about how fast. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Can you iterate an experiment? I think that's the best advice that I would give. That's awesome advice. And once you build a business with a location independent infrastructure that you can run from anywhere and you decide that you want to do the digital nomad lifestyle. You've now been doing this for four years and I want to ask your advice on structuring a fulfilling nomadic lifestyle over the long term, over many, many years. Can you talk a little bit just about, for you personally, how do you, for example, choose your destinations and how long to stay? And while you're there, how do you balance work and travel and socializing? And you mentioned that you are nomading with your spouse. So for relationship partners that want to consider this together, can you give some tips for doing this with a relationship partner as well? Yeah. First of all, there's a totally different way of traveling now. I would say people who want to be nomadic or are just newly nomadic, you feel like you're always running out of time and you want to hit a bunch of different spots as fast as possible to make sure you don't miss anything. And then you get really burnt out. And I started like that too. So I think the first step where I'm sure anyone who's been doing it for a few years will say is that like, at least stay a month. It's good for your wallet for like Airbnb fees, but also it's exhausting. Think about like instead of a week in one place, spend a month and use the weekends, which add up to a whole week that you can spend exploring. But I think there's a whole different way of traveling where eventually you get traveled out and you need this meaning for why you still move around. And for me, it's for visiting different startup hubs. I love talking to different entrepreneurs. I love listening to the unique things about a market, like what makes it the way that it is and what opportunities and challenges are unique to this place. What opportunities are for me or like for an expat to come in and help or to arbitrage some things or what would my life be like if I lived here? Like what would I be working on? And what can I take away from this place that can better my own life and business? So that's something that I travel for. I specifically go to different startup hubs to learn from the people there. And I learned so much from China because they move so fast. They do 996, like work nine to nine, six days a week. And they iterate really, really fast. And they're really on the ground hustling. They're not afraid. In the US, like growth hackers are like, okay, email and ads. And like, how do I 
do things, but like not actually talk to individual customers. But there's something really special about people going door to door and building this brick by brick and talking to every single person, even though it's China, because they know that in order for things to really take off, they need their initial users. And people are really not afraid to do dirty work, which I found that people are really afraid to do in Silicon Valley. So I like going to these places to learn about trends and cycles. But then I have friends that travel to stand-up comedy hubs because she's a product manager who does stand-up comedy. And she wants to go and network with people in stand-up comedy. And then I also know someone, they're both from the Asian Female Nomads, now Asian Wonder Woman community. And she specifically goes to places to learn about how the government handles mental health. Like, what are the resources in each place? And she, she was writing a book about it. And I think that in the future, nomads, as you choose different places, you're going to start choosing places where you find people that you want to meet or have experiences that you want to have. And that's how I choose my places. In terms of my husband, so he doesn't have that goal. He kind of just follows me based on my goals. But for him, he has a remote job. For him, it's more about seeing different places and having these different experiences, like more of a travel kind of experience, like a traditional traveling experience. But he gets very tired easily. Like if it was up to him, we would be in a place three months at a time. But for me, I still get a little bit of that FOMO feeling. I'm like, there's people to meet and places to go. I need to leave. But so it's hard to strike that balance. The other challenge that we have, I would say, is like being together all the time. We always try to book a one bedroom or at least a two bedroom so that there's space in the sense of like we work in different spaces. And this is still something that we are figuring out. But I know that another couple who travels, they spend Sunday apart every single Sunday. So they have a chance to miss each other. And then they have a chance to share things that only they get to experience. For us, we don't do that yet. Because every like three months, we usually like do our own thing for like two weeks. So for example, next week, I'm flying back to Ottawa for two weeks and he's going for his bachelor party and we'll meet back in San Francisco in two weeks. So I think it's good to take breaks away from each other, whether that's like frequently every week or like, you know, go for a weekend yourself somewhere, not being afraid to do that. Awesome. Well, you mentioned the Asian female nomad community that you founded. Can you talk a little bit about that and what led to the founding of that? What sort of motivated you and inspired you to create that? And then how has it evolved and what is it like today? Sure. So Asian Female Nomads was the original name of the community. It's now called Asian Wonder Woman. So in case listeners are looking for it on Facebook, the name has changed. My friend who I met in Silicon Valley when I worked there is an expat in Singapore now. In early 2021, we just really wanted to make friends online because we've been in the pandemic for almost a year. And yeah, it was time to like connect with people online. Like before I was like, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, you do a lot of Zoom calls and then it like faded. And then by like March 2021, like a year later, I was ready to go on the Zoom call high again. So we're like, okay, why don't we start a Facebook community that's really, really niche? And because it's just easier to bring people together who strongly identify with those three adjectives. And she was building a community in Singapore. She moved to Singapore right at the beginning of the pandemic. So she barely made any friends. It was just to honestly make friends online. And we started bringing in like 200 of our own, anyone that's Asian and female, we like brought into the community. And then we just started talking about things like, how do your parents feel if you move abroad? Because yeah, Asian parents really don't like it when their kids are living far away. You know, Asian parents expect 
kids to be filial. And Asian parents also expect Asian girls to be a bit more softer or like take a very traditional path, get a good job, marry a good husband, have kids early. So that's something that we talk about. We also talk about what you do when like someone says Chino at you when you like walk down the street, like how do you react? And like things that like are very unique, I think, experience for Asian women. And as we grew this community, we also ran like events around like investing and egg freezing and how to start a coaching business. It's just like things that will empower women to be nomadic and lead these unconventional lives. And what I realized through this, the growth last December when we were out around five, 600 members, I happened to be in Lisbon where I fell into the Web3 rabbit hole. And I looked at our group and there's always people asking about who has side hustles. How do I start one? I want to be nomadic. I need a different income stream. Especially when we were running events there, we were like having remote job boards being put out. And I was like, what if we can bring all these women together who are already online skilled? They were all mostly working in the tech industry or half of them were already nomadic. So they definitely had the ability to like sustain themselves through online work in some way, what if we can bring them together and they can launch side hustles as co-founders together? And that's where the idea of the DAO came about. Where, okay, I want this community to flourish, but it needs to go beyond me and my co-founder consistently posting and hosting events. We wanted more community ownership. I want to see everyone's equals. I really think that like we can build better things and move forward more as a community as a whole where everyone contributes. And that's why from Asian female nomads, we rebranded to Asian wander women. Not everyone identifies as nomads. Like some people are expats or like people who live in different places, but aren't consistently traveling. So first of all, people identify with it more, but also we decided to, as a spinoff, like it's two separate communities, spin out wander women DAO, which the goal is to bring not just Asian women, but all women and non-binary male allies, et cetera, to come in. And the goal is to raise a community treasury through an NFT and then use that community treasury that the community owns and decides on where it goes to be able to fund people to work remotely and build the projects that they want to see in the world. And the one standard that we have is that this should empower more people to be able to be more nomadic. That's amazing. Well, I want to break down some of the jargon, let's call it, that you used in describing all of that, that some folks may not be familiar with. And I want to ask if you can sort of explain a handful of different terms. When you said you went down the Web3 rabbit hole, and I know you've been very immersed in investing in cryptocurrency and NFTs and then the creation of this DAO and all of that. But for folks that aren't as familiar with the space, let's just start with this term and concept of Web3. How do you explain Web3 to folks that haven't really heard that term before? Yeah. So in order to understand Web3, I think you really need to understand Web1 and 2 first. <laughs> like, how do we get to the third iteration of the internet or like web, right? So the first iteration, people often see it as like static, where HTML first came about and like websites were originally built. If you remember websites that were just like pages where you couldn't interact with it. That was web one. When web two came around, because like web one couldn't store any of your data and therefore like, you know, things like Airbnb and Uber and like Facebook, et cetera, they couldn't do that because it just couldn't, didn't have a database behind it. It couldn't remember who you were. You can think of web two as that, where like databases were built behind for you to interact with 
and a lot of social media came about in order for you to publish online. But the companies owned a lot of that data. Between Web 1 and 2, the reason why the evolution happened to more digital islands, which are really just data is stored in a lot of different companies and they don't really interact with each other. Just if you post a photo on Instagram, you have to download it again or post it on LinkedIn separately. The data pieces don't really connect and the ownership of it is not yours. But the reason why it evolved that way is because more closed networks where companies were able to pay people and like hold their data and then like figure out how to improve their product on their data without everyone needing to follow the same standards as in web one where like, you know, websites were all built off the same standard. They were able to grow faster. And that actually was great for us because we got a lot of different tools that we now use. And then when we, why like the evolution is happening into web three is because a lot of people aren't really happy with these digital islands with like Facebook owning all your data, Google owning all your data. So they believe that the people who are starting the web through revolution believe that as individuals, we should own our own data. So instead of Facebook holding our data, it should be that we have like a backpack where we take our data with us as we interact with the rest of the web. But it's not really a backpack. It's kind of like a key where you can unlock your data and give it to whoever you want to give it to. And so that's how I kind of describe like web one, two, and three. But web three as a whole, like what I mean by falling down the rabbit hole is that there's a lot of technologies that allow web three to happen. And blockchain is the most fundamental one in smart contracts where blockchain stores all your data and you can access it through a key and give access to it to whoever you want to give access to. Can you also talk about, related to this, your journey with cryptocurrency and the evolution of decentralized finance? And of course, as an obvious disclaimer, folks, this is absolutely not investment advice. Anything relating to cryptocurrency and NFTs, like any other asset class, comes with tons of risks. And any money you invest, you could lose it and all of that. So we're not giving any investment advice. I'm just curious about Ivy's journey and where you've come out for yourself on this. I think it's really important to understand that when it comes to Web3 and blockchain technology, that there's several different fields. There's DeFi, there's NFTs, there's DAOs, and then there's like play-to-earn gaming. I think those are all the different things that people decided that they can do with cryptocurrencies and what they can do with blockchain technology. However, people who are experts in one field are not necessarily experts in another field. So I think like my journey, and this is something that I just recommend everyone do. There's a free program online called Unit Masters. And I went through that program. It's like a six-week crypto literacy kind of course, where they give you what I found most valuable were actually the assignments. So every week, there's like two speakers that come in. There's free speakers everywhere. We're running a Web3 education series for Wonder Woman DAO. We just had our Blockchain 101 lesson today, but you need to go in and actually do the work. And so on week one, they actually tell you the assignment is like, look up these terms and be able to explain it to someone. And one of them was Web3. And then there's like distributed ledger, like smart contracts. What is the scalability trilemma? Why is blockchain innovative, right? It's like asking you to go out and answer these for yourself and put it into your own words. And then later on, you go through what's the difference between different blockchains? Like, why is there different blockchains? How do you move across them? Like, I think this program is really, really good for beginners. And I took this as a start. And then after that, I started digging a bit deeper 
into the different fields. I decided that, you know, DeFi, people are making a lot of money there. So that actually was the first thing that I fell into. And a community that I'm part of called Trends offered a Black Friday sale to some other members like Zero to DeFi course, Catherine Lavery. And it's pretty good. They have a Discord community too. So it teaches you the basics. Like, so instead of buying Ethereum Bitcoin, which are just coins, like the first thing that you can do is stake them. So yeah, I fell into DeFi space. I recommend looking at there's a YouTube video that Catherine Lavery does, which is all the different ways that you can make money off your crypto. And so I think there's like staking, there's lending, there's putting it into a liquidity pool, which means that like you put in two currencies and it's just like a float for people to trade between the two. And then you make a part of the transaction fee. So things like that, like just, I would say get to know all the different ways and then start with like a really cheap type of coin and just get your, I guess, bearings of the DeFi space. And then if you don't like it, that's okay. There's like all these different things. Like there's people that specifically invest in NFTs and try to flip NFTs, which is a totally different game than like DeFi. But you could also stake NFTs because NFTs are still just technically a token, right? The same as a crypto currency, but they're just non-fungible, meaning there's only one of them. I don't flip NFTs. I buy NFTs to join communities that I want to be part of. And then there's DAOs where you can go in and you can totally not understand anything about DeFi and work for a DAO and then get paid for your work. Play to earn games, allow you to play games and then earn something, or you can buy an NFT, lend out that NFT, and then make a portion of what someone does with that NFT. There's a really popular game now called Ice Poker, where in order to play poker and be at the table, you need to have an NFT. And that NFT is really expensive. So then there's people that buy these NFTs and lend them out and then share in a portion of the poker earnings. So my friend's doing this. He's a really great poker player and he's training people to be better poker players so that they can play for him so that he can make passive income off of his NFTs. So a lot in the space. I would start with trying to understand the basics. Terminology is really important. And then as you learn the terminology, you'll also understand what there is because like, it's just so easy. It's like Wikipedia. You click on something, you're like, oh, what does this mean? You go somewhere else and then you have to go back to it. And then it's like a whole maze, but a lot of exciting opportunities here. So when you explain NFTs to people that are not familiar with them, non-fungible tokens, how do you explain what an NFT is? And can you maybe give some examples of some NFTs that you have purchased? You were telling me about a really cool one before we started this interview that's actually inspiring you to go to Ghana. I explain NFTs to a specific target market, which is actually women in my community that I'm trying to get on board to Web3 so that they can be part of the Wonder Woman DAO community and then work for this DAO, right? So an NFT is first visibly usually a piece of art, but it doesn't need to be a piece of art. It can also hold a lot of data like music or like a poem. In fact, the art can even be the same. And then the token number is different. And so like, People buy and sell NFTs because of the utility of, of this NFT. Sometimes it's just the value of the art. Just like an art collector who might collect pieces from famous artists, just like that, an NFT could go up in price or increase in value, decrease in value based on how popular the artist is or how rare each piece is. So that's one thing. But NFTs can also provide utility in other ways. It can be a pass to a concert. It can give you access to people. You can think of it like buying a ticket to something. And oftentimes it's to a community, which gives you 
access to the people in it, and also a lot of different perks. And you can decide whether that's worth it. But how that's different than a normal ticket is the NFT retains a value. You actually can resell it. And as an NFT holder, you want this NFT to increase in value. And therefore, you want what you get with the NFT to increase in value. And that actually creates this flywheel effect where the people who buy into the community want to help the community thrive and add more value to it so that the access to it increases in value so that what you hold then increases in value. So I think there's a lot of really cool examples out there and I'll give a few. The first one that I want to say is actually a women-led NFT that's just for social impact. It's called Women Rise. I hold it and they've partnered with like Snapchat and they really support Malala's education plan. So when you buy into this, like they donate a lot of money every single month from the secondary sales royalties, as well as any minting, a huge percentage goes to charity. And then what they use this money to do is to advance women's education and their goal is to build a metaverse school. So a lot of this funding just generally goes towards a cause that you care about. And so people who buy into it are also a community of people who are like-minded and care about a similar cause. And you might not care if the NFT goes up or down in price if you just think of it as like a social impact project. Then there's the NFT that we were just talking about called the Royals NFT, which was founded by someone in Ghana. And this NFT gives you access to a luxury gala going to be in Ghana in December. And this is very much similar to like a concert ticket, an access pass, etc. And then with this ticket, you also get concierge services around travel on their website. But I bought it because it's a cool piece of art and then it supports African culture and it gives me access to a cool gala. That's so awesome. I as well am an owner of a Women Rise NFT and am part of that community. And it's super, super dynamic and very, very cool. There's tons of amazing stuff that's being done with NFTs. So let's talk a little bit about your upcoming NFT project. And before we do that, though, I want to ask if you can clarify a little bit more about the DAO, the Wonder Women DAO. First of all, let's talk about what that stands for, a decentralized autonomous organization. Can you explain what that means as a concept and then what the Wonder Woman DAO is all about and what the NFT project is going to be all about? Yeah, sure. So DAOs, as you mentioned, decentralized autonomous organizations, just means that not a central person or team holds a lot of the decision-making power. So by decentralized, we mean that it's decentralized ownership, decentralized decision-making, more transparency across the entire organization because it runs on the blockchain. So kind of already explained that a lot of these Web3 fields are run on blockchain. So the reason why we wanted to create a DAO community is because we wanted it to be decentralized where everyone contributes and everyone's incentivized to contribute because they are a owner. So going into what Wonder Woman DAO is, Wonder Woman DAO is a venture studio DAO. So venture studio being a startup builder, we're going to build multiple different products and services that serve female and non-binary nomads or empower more people to be financial location and creatively independent and free. And what that really means is not only do we build products in that space, but 
our members can come in and work remotely and get paid for their contributions and thereby turning them nomadic and being able to work remotely and get paid. And then the DAO portion is everyone in the community shares the ownership of the organization and therefore all the different products that are built through it. So we're launching with a community treasury, which will be fundraised through an NFT launch. What that means is we have a core team and we're creating art that is an NFT. And we're basically selling this art as well as ownership into the DAO. So when someone buys this, majority of the money we decided on 75% goes into the DAO treasury. And because they put that much money into DAO treasury, they obviously own a part of it. And each NFT will also give them a vote on what happens with that treasury. So that's where the decision-making power is decentralized. So we'll have a way where everyone in the community can submit proposals on what we do with this treasury, such as build a safe like community-based housing swap or launch a business coaching program for everyone in this DAO, right? Like, what do we want to spend this treasury on? Anyone can propose, anyone can lead these projects. And then it's only decided on once everyone that's an NFT holder votes on this. And why it's so special and not just like another Kickstarter or crowdfund or like a Facebook group, how it's different is that it runs on blockchain. So all of our transactions and the treasury is all stored there. And so anyone can go and look to make sure that no one's tampering with that treasury. And then the smart contracts that run on this blockchain can guarantee that the majority of votes, we definitely distribute those funds over to the right projects. Because everyone is an owner, we want to incentivize, like align incentives where everyone who's a member comes and contributes and wants to bring up the value, wants to launch more products, because then it someone who comes in will get more value and therefore the price of entry will technically increase. And so will their assets as an investment for their NFT. So awesome. That's really, really amazing. And of course, again, just to reiterate, this is, of course, not investment advice and it's not an investment offering, but we are definitely going to link this up in the show notes so that you can go learn more about it, do your own independent research, see if it's something that you may want to learn more about, possibly even get involved with. And for folks that are interested after they do their own research in the NFT project, do you have a general ballpark range for when the NFT project will launch? And is it possible for any Maverick Show listeners that are interested to potentially get on the allow list for the NFT project and maybe even explain what that term means? Yeah. So I'll first explain what it means. Usually before a NFT launches to the public, they launch to some early supporters. And there's some big projects that it's really, really hard to get on an allow list, which is an early mint. So you get first access to buying a set number, usually at a more discounted price to reward people who have been early supporters and are sure that they want to contribute and be part of this project. And so for us, like we're probably going to launch around the end of May or early June, the time to be determined because our art is still going through iterations. I think we're really, really excited about it. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we'll definitely be sharing those. And I think this podcast will be linking the Discord link and everyone who's part of our Discord will get the opportunity to get on the allow list, which will be at least 0.01 ETH cheaper than the public mint. So if you know that supporting 
women builders and investing in yourself to learn more about Web3 as well as building different remote businesses. Our whole goal is to empower our members to build remote businesses. And it doesn't have to be in Web3. Then this could be a great way to put your money where your mouth is and join the community first. Discord's obviously free. We have a lot of channels around ideation, building an MVP, how to fundraise for builders to support each other. And then you'll also get first access to our website, the arts iterations, and we're building in public in our Discord right now. That's awesome. Well, I am a member of the Discord and super excited to be part of the community. I'm also following the project on Twitter and Instagram. And we're definitely going to link up all of that in the show notes. Folks can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com. Go to the show notes for this episode. And there you'll find all the social media handles, the link to join the Discord community, as well as to get more information on everything that you're up to. Let me ask you one more question, Ivy, and then we'll move into the lightning round and wrap this up. When you think back on all of your travels and all of your nomadic experiences and how all of that has impacted you as a person on your journey, why do you continue to be so passionate about travel? What does travel mean to you? I would say that travel is the best way to get back a child's eyes or like to see a place with fresh eyes where, I don't know, you just get this kind of inspiration from different places. So I travel for these startup hubs to meet entrepreneurs to get a different way of seeing the world, right? Either through cultures or through different experiences, I've chatted with some people that I've met in my travels and I've asked them why they travel. Actually, the most interesting people that I've met on why they travel is people that I've met woofing. And I haven't woofed very often. Like I was in New Zealand. I had two experiences for two weeks working on like a farm. But it was very, very memorable. And I chatted with a girl who was from Korea. And she said that I travel because the people that I meet and the things that I do, I want to see the little things that I can take into my own life. And that has really stuck with me. And I see that not just for my own life, but for the businesses that I build as well. I think that's a great way to get a competitive advantage, being able to know all the different ways to do something and finding the right way to do it for you. Amazing. All right, Ivy, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Okay, let's go. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years you'd recommend people check out? I'm going to give two books that I feel like people don't give. One is called Flowers to Algernon. And it's a book about a mentally retarded man in his diary that he takes some kind of scientific medical pill and he becomes smarter and becomes not just a normal person, but like a genius. And then he degrades back to being like a retarded person. Like that's the exact word they use. And it's just so fascinating following that journey and seeing the world through each stage of his like intelligence journey. Many of my friends that I've recommended this book to have cried during it. I did not cry, but I thought it was just like the best type of like fiction that really makes you think. The second book is called Some. I like recommending fiction books because I think nonfiction is usually the first level of reading where you want to get knowledge. But then fiction books are the ones where like, if you can get something out of it, you know the writer did really, really well. So Some 
is a book with a bunch of short stories about what the afterlife could look like. And it's just the author reimagining all the different ways that what happens when you die. And there's completely fiction. It's not religious at all. I'll just give a little bit of an explanation of the first idea that they have. The first thing that might happen after death is instead of living life where you're happy one moment and then a few moments you're sad and then like you sleep for eight hours a day and then the rest of the time you're awake. What happens after death is you experience all of the same moments that you live through in life all at once. So you spend five like incredibly ecstatic days and you spend like 10 days showering and you spend like years sleeping and then whatever number of weeks cutting your toenails, etc. And at the end, it was just like this thought piece of, wow, then you can't even remember what it was like when moments shuffled between each other. And it's just a really cool thought process to think about, wow, we're so lucky that we don't experience five days of excruciating bone breaking pain all at once. Wow. All right. We are going to link those books up in the show notes. Ivy, what is one travel hack that you use that you can recommend to people? Number one with Airbnb, you can definitely ask for how fast the Wi-Fi is before you book a place. And then also like almost all monthly stays are negotiable. So how you could do that is message the host and just say that this place is slightly out of my budget. Would you consider, because I'm staying for months, like giving a little bit higher of a discount? And most of the times they say yes. Awesome. Knowing everything that you know now, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Ivy? I think what, 18-year-old me should know is you have the ability to create the life that you want. I think at 18, I couldn't have imagined what my life would look like like 10 years at that time. And it's because I thought at 18, my life was just like planned out for me. I was going to go to college, university. I was going to graduate. I was going to be a consultant or something. And then I was going to live in Toronto. At that time, I didn't even know about Silicon Valley. I think it's just you're always going to learn new things and ways that like life could be and if someone else can do it and so can you. Awesome. If you could have dinner with any person that's currently alive today that you've never met, just you and that person for an evening of dinner and conversation, who would you pick? Balaji? I don't know. I can't pronounce his last name. I just remember his uh, first name. Do you know who he is? Balaji Srinivasan? I think so. He has a new book coming out. I think that's really, really fascinating. I love learning about how cities and governments and like states function and also very, very curious about crypto cities, like city DAOs, where you can actually establish something and then recreate it from the ground up. I think he talks a lot about that. And I'm really excited for his book to come out. Yeah, Balajri Srinivasan will link his information up and his new book up in the show notes as well. That would be a super interesting dinner. All right, Ivy, of all the places that you have traveled up to this point, what are your top three places that you'd most recommend people should definitely visit? Yeah, I love places that surprise me. So number one, I loved Egypt. I think it's so underrated and especially the Red Sea. That's where I learned to dive. And it was because I went snorkeling off the beach and I saw two dolphins and I managed to swim with two dolphins. I was like, okay, I have to learn how to dive here. And that ended up being a trip that we really, really extended. And then I would say Nairobi, Kenya. 
I think it's the place where I found the best Chinese food outside of China and also the best mobile payment infrastructure outside of WeChat and China as well. Just places that really, really surprised me. And it's not just because I like Chinese food and the payments infrastructure is really impressive, but it just was nothing like what I expected. Actually, payment infrastructure is really, really important for developing nations. And Nairobi was just like a fabulous city. And then, of course, China. I really think that if you want to see what the future looks like, go to China. And it's just really, really hard to see it without actually going there because there's so little news about it, what people are building there, how people are living. And so you have to experience it, I think, for yourself. I've been to the other two places you recommended. I've spent about a year in Egypt based in Cairo and I've uh, been to Nairobi for about a month. And yeah, I totally second that. Both incredible and special and important places. Have not yet been to mainland China. So I am definitely going to hit you up, Ivy, when I'm ready to plan that trip. Yeah, I do. I feel like I need to spend a really substantial amount of time there. And with your encouragement about how easy it will be to work there, I'm definitely even more encouraged now to start thinking very seriously about setting that up. All right, final question. What are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you have not yet been highest on your list you most want to see. Okay, that's easy. I'm talking about these for my honeymoon recently. Antarctica is one of them. Really, really want to go there. I really want to do a road trip down Chile. I'm going to call that the same trip. Like a road trip down Chile to the end and then go on that cruise for Antarctica. That's like one trip. West Africa and South Africa haven't been. And then Northern Lights in Norway, Finland. This is more than three. (laughs) And then Brazil. (laughs) I haven't been to the Amazon. Yeah. India. Oh, so many places. All right. We'll just give you like a top seven. It's all right. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Well, you and I have have talked a good bit now about West Africa, which is an an incredible region. I was fortunate to spend a few months there in 2019. And definitely when you're ready to go and planning your trip to go to the gala in Ghana, definitely hit me up and I'll give you some tips for that because it's a super special region. And Ghana is one of my favorite countries in the world. So that's amazing. All right. Ivy, I want you to let folks know how they can find you, follow you, connect with you, learn more about what you're up to. How do you want people to come into your world? Yeah, I think the best way to find what I do is at ivyshoe.com. It's my first name, last name.com. From there, you can find all my other socials, Beta Camp, Wander Woman Dow. And then I'm going to launch a weekly short digital postcard newsletter to kind of update everyone also about my travels and work, just the new ideas that I come across. You can find all of that on my website. For Wonder Woman Dow, I think we're linking the Discord down below. And then we're most active on Twitter. Amazing. Everything that we have talked about in this episode will be in one place. Just go to themaverickshow.com. Go to the show notes for this episode. And there you will find links to everything we have discussed. Ivy, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. 
Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.